Number 161, we've been asked to mark that, and we certainly look forward to that opportunity of lifting our voices continually in song. The singing certainly is so beautiful. It is an exciting opportunity when brothers and sisters in Christ can collectively lift their voices in the way that we have this evening. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That beautiful refrain of Ephesians 5 verse number 19. It is good that God has allowed us the privilege of assembling again to, as we are this evening to offer adoration and exaltation to His name. It is our goal to continue to do as we have done this morning and certainly on some previous Sunday evenings. We have been looking at some series of lessons, as you can see on the wall to my left, touching on that relationship between the Bible on the one hand and science, especially physics, on the other. It is interesting, I think, as we have found to this point in the series of lessons, that some of these comments might well be worth an extremely brief review. We have learned that there is a very fundamental nature, of course, to the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works." And that particular statement of 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16, helps us appreciate the bedrock, unshakable foundation, which is the Word of God. Although the theories of science and the models that are so often presented may disagree with it, we still are understanding which is the correct and which is the one that is yet somewhat faulty. We also have learned in this series about the powerful foreknowledge, even scientifically, that is to be found in the Bible. There have been times, as you and I have noticed, that sometimes hundreds if not thousands of years elapsed between the time the Word of God stated a particular scientific element and then scientists only that much later discovered it. And that has been a faith-building matter for you and for me to understand the author of this book was not merely men by themselves, but it was God directing them to write what they did. Even beyond that, we came to appreciate that there really is no conflict at all between the facts of science and, of course, the proclamations of the Word of God. And then finally, we did look most recently at a few specific examples of all of these things. Everything from oceanography to meteorology and the fact that even in the Bible, some of these things were stated in somewhat direct fashion. Tonight, as we come to another series of lessons, or at least another lesson in the series, let us look, in fact, in a continuing fashion at some of those features there, asking, what about other arenas in physics that perhaps the Bible foreshadowed long before scientists actually discovered it? We'll, be we'll begin with some initial statements, a bit of these reminding us the stature to which we've come the rest of it perhaps hinting at the ever-present danger that we and our youngsters face. Science textbooks today, quite frankly, often present matters that very much disagree with the Bible. It calls upon you and me to be very cautious, careful, and in fact to be very certain as to the nature of what we do teach and to be ready to answer our youngsters when they ask us questions that certainly even touch upon scientific subjects. You'll notice in that first particular section, it leads us to appreciate yet again that marvelous passage in John 17 verse 17. 
Wasn't it there that Jesus said, speaking about the nature of truth, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And as often as you and I reflect on that, the greatness of its depths perhaps will never be appreciated thoroughly as much as you and I shall do so or wish we could do so in this life. Everything that God has said is true. You'll notice that one of the things that that certainly leads us to see is that opposite text in 1 Timothy 6. Very much near the end of that book, Paul reminded Timothy one final time and reminded him in one fantastic way to ever be aware that there are oppositions of science, falsely so-called. Think about that statement, oppositions of science. It still is true, as we've noted so often. There are those that will stand and teach general evolution. There are those that will stand and teach the Big Bang model or theory. There are those that will stand and with great confidence teach any number of things which disagree in one or more ways with this book. Paul again said the oppositions of science, falsely so-called. That word science again comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And so there are these kinds of knowledge which many think that they know. Many think that they well understand, but yet Paul said they're false. For those reasons, we have attempted in this series to give thought to those faith-building realizations in which so often the Bible has indeed led us to appreciate scientific things long before scientists actually discovered them. Let us look at yet another one in that same list. The existence of atoms. I suppose it might well be said that the discovery of the atom, the consideration of its existence, and all the technology that has been built upon it has truly been a revolution in science. It is true that there were some in the ancient Greek society who wondered about the existence of atoms, but by and large those wonderings were left unturned for almost two millennia. And then suddenly with the work of men like John Dalton, Antoine Lavoisier, John J.J. Thompson, and a number of others, we came to recognize that there are these indivisible portions of matter you can only divide a particular substance down so far and you get to a part of it that can no longer be divided. We even teach our youngsters from an early age on about the existence of an atom. It has within it these electrons, protons, and neutrons. But might I ask, that kind of knowledge, at least accepted scientifically, didn't come along until the middle of the 1800s at the earliest and quite frankly really on into the early 1900s. That's only now a little over a hundred years ago. I might ask, there is a particular passage in the Word of God that seems to have a very interesting relationship to this thought. I'd invite you to read with me in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. In the heart of the New Testament, the inspired writer Peter had these words to say as he spoke about the nature of God's greatness. You might recall two verses earlier, he had said something about that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, presenting, of course, the fact that God is not bound by the characteristics of time. He stands outside of it in thoroughness and in entirety. But for us, it's verse 10. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 
the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Immediately, we have a description about the ending of time and the great nature of the conflagration, the burning, the consummation that will take place then. But isn't it interesting that Peter said, The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. It is that word elements that I would invite you to consider with me for just a moment. Remember, we were at least pondering the nature of atoms. That word elements comes from the Greek word stoion, which quite frankly is the very same Greek word that our chemist friends, say at Tennessee Tech and other places, developed the thought of stoichiometry. It is exactly the same portion in the Greek text. As you give thought to it, notice again the word elements. It has reference to first elements, first principles, basic substances. I might ask, could it be that in the long ago, God in fact teased the thought of mankind with the fact that there are indivisible portions of the matter around us? There are the most basic, elemental, first principles and first matters that touch to them. As you think about it, notice two verses later in verse 12 of the same chapter, Paul used this, or rather Peter used the exact same phrase again. The first elements. The elements, if you please, that should be consumed. I say all of that to say, isn't it a fascinating thing that here is a portion of the Word of God. And despite the discoveries of science that have now passed almost 20 centuries since Peter wrote that, there is no disagreement with the truth recognized in science to this day the existence of this fundamental, indivisible portion of matter. You and I might not be too surprised at that given the infinite knowledge of God who penned these scriptures and who authored them. When you and I think about the nature of atoms and the richness that goes along with the existence of them, maybe there's only more to be said. Other things in science, perhaps like these... As you know, when we ask our students in chemistry or physical science or other subjects to learn the periodic table, to at least learn some of the elements on it, maybe their mass numbers, perhaps some of the other features of it, they soon learn that there are some bottom elements on that table that are extremely heavy. They often learn they're radioactive. They often learn that they thus do not occur naturally any longer in nature. It is that aspect of this that I would invite your consideration with me for at least another moment or two. Some of those heavier elements on that periodic table, where did they come from? Our scientist friends, I might state to you, very quickly say, well, there was a big bang roughly 14 billion years ago, so they tell us. And over a long period of time, some of the lighter elements fused together, and ultimately that led to these heavier ones. What you often do not hear is that there's some rather interesting findings in science that make that an impossibility. It's called radio halos. It is now well recognized in so many places these particular radio halos have been discovered. And might I suggest these are nothing more than heavy elements embedded in some other kind of longer lasting substances. And these radio halos, it's clear from their appearance, they were formed very quickly. 
It couldn't have been billions and billions of years. They had to form by the fact they decay. Remember the radioactive? And yet they're still present, embedded forevermore, it seems, as a lesson for you and me to appreciate that however they came to be, it was quick. You'll notice that we don't hear much about that in the scientific literature because it flies in the face of Big Bang Theory. It flies in the face of general evolution. But it harmonizes completely with this book. In Exodus 20, verse 11, the inspired writer said, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in the is, and rested on the seventh day. Everything, be they heavy elements or light, were made in a period of six days and no more. And yet that corresponds fully to the kind of matter of a radio halo. Isn't that an interesting thing that what we often hear so little about really is in harmony with the grandeur and the perfectness of the Word of God? The fact that in six days all these things were made perhaps reminds us that even in the New Testament, wasn't it true in the opening chapter of the book of John? We see yet one more time, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God and was not anything made that was made. The activities of the Godhead in bringing about this material universe with its order and all of its beautiful features took place with that very limited span of only six days. As you can see, perhaps a fourth item would be of at least passing interest. The very simple substance known as ice. Our chemist friends, again at Tennessee Tech, could lecture to you and me for probably weeks on the subject of ice. For after all, it is fundamentally different in some ways in water. Water is the liquid version, ice the solid version of that particular substance, but yet ice has something very special about it. In fact, you might have noted that ice will float on water. That has a tremendous factor of influence upon the world around us. As you think, though, about ice and what the Bible says about it, here are just a few passing features. The Old Testament mentions ice on a number of occasions. You'll notice in Psalm 147, verse 7, as well as Job 37, we find that it's described as the breath of God, as if it is able to form in an extended and expansive way, not on the spur of the moment in the sense of being, if you will, localized, and you and I recognize frost occurs that way. But not only that, you'll notice that those passages also hint to a fundamental crystalline structure. After all, it mentions the treasures. It mentions the fine details. That couldn't happen just by happenstance or coincidence. There seems to be design involved in the structure of ice. Today, again, we ask our students to learn about ice, we ask them to appreciate the way it's different from water or from steam. We ask them to understand how that ice, in fact, has the kind of properties that it does. These Old Testament writers perhaps lead us to, in Job 38 verse 30 to say there's yet one more thing stated there about ice that to this day is interesting in astronomy. The inspired writer there stated that the waters of the deep are covered with ice. When you and I read about these waters of the deep, 
you'll notice that's not waters here in the seas or in the oceans of earth. This is in the far distant recesses of outer space, and yet the inspired writer said that is covered with ice. To this point, our astronomer friends are still searching the deep recesses of space, and sometimes they find remarkable things. I feel sure that if telescopic means allow them to do so, there will come a time they will discover ice in the far distant recesses of the universe. The amazing things that God has fashioned. So far, everything from ice back earlier in that list to those radio halos, you'll notice that these perhaps tease us with some more scientific truths also to be found in the Word of God. Being at least one rather interested in, in physics as it relates to light, I've always been intrigued by the way the book of Genesis presents the subject of light. You and I know that where would we be without light? I know we could all answer in the dark, but wouldn't we be in far more hurtful places than that? After all, it is light by the, our eyes are able to respond to and allows us to perceive the world about us. It's light that we use to illuminate and learn so much information. It still is true that on average over 80% of the information that you and I receive, we receive by light. Light is very special. You remember on the very first day of God's creative activity, Genesis 1 verse 3, He said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God divided the light from the dark, and He called the light day, and the darkness He called night. God fashioned light early in His creative activity. When you and I think then about light, there is one thing, of course, to easily observe. The sun did not come along until day four. The existence of light predated the sun by three full days. And furthermore, it predated all the stars and the moon and all the other astronomical bodies. Light predated all of them. Thus, we shouldn't think that the source of all light is the sun, for it isn't. Nor should we think that the source of light is purely extraterrestrial things. It's not. In fact, as you look at some of these features about light, you'll notice that one other thing that perhaps leads us to an interesting truth is Job 38, verses 7 and 16. Here were a series of questions asked by God. God asked Job on one occasion about the nature of the stars singing. Quite frankly, that may seem puzzling. We think about stars as these cold, perhaps dark, inanimate objects in the far distant recesses of space. We think about these orbs, these bodies, and yet they sing. We now know scientifically that as they emit radiation, that kind of radiation could well be described as singing. For after all, sound waves and light waves are both waves. And just as surely as there are things that respond to one, there are scientific instruments and devices that respond to the other. Indeed, they sing. There are any number of astronomical devices that can detect that singing, that ringing, if you please, record it, and then it can be analyzed therefrom. You'll notice yet another passage. In Job 38, 24, God there made mention of the fact that light can be parted. We have each seen the operation of a prism, the operation of a spectroscope in which white light is divided into its colors, 
Indeed, light can be divided. There's an extensive electromagnetic spectrum that describes that division. Science now knows that to be true and has for a little over a century. How did Job know it? Well, over 3,000 years ago. Isn't that interesting? The parting of light, the fact that stars can sing, and yet it's recorded in the Word of God and has been there all along. Electromagnetic radiation is basically what light is. You notice that so far these verses that we've mentioned, now the word electromagnetic wasn't coined until around 1861. So it's no wonder the word doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. But as you and I think about the nature of all those features and the nature of what light is, there is nothing about it that is in disagreement to the teaching of the Bible. That is so very impressive, isn't it? As you think about light, perhaps we might discuss the issue of cause and effect. I think I'm safe in saying that the most basic and fundamental of all scientific thoughts is cause and effect. Nothing that occurs can do so without an adequate and antecedent cause. Things don't just happen randomly. They don't just happen without something that caused it. And yet the Bible is in full agreement to that truth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2. We notice that here there was a force. In fact, an extremely strong one that brought order out of chaos, that brought regularity and that brought the character of sequence out of what formerly was in dissolution. That's the greatness of cause and effect. You'll notice that there are other verses, though, that attach to the same. In Psalm 33, verse number, verses 7 through 9, we find there the simple statement, The Lord spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The context of that particular section of Psalm 33 is again a highlight of the greatness of the creation about us. And there the inspired writer David simply pointed out it did not come about by accident, as some of our astronomer and physicist friends might lead us to think. You'll notice that explosions, when they do happen, tend not to bring about order. They tend to bring about disorder, don't they? We call in a demolition crew to destroy a skyscraper or perhaps uh, an old football stadium that's no longer used. And after they detonate it, it's in a pile of rubble. Order hasn't been brought about. Disorder has. And yet in science, we are asked to believe that somehow a long, long time ago, a gigantic explosion happened. And the marvelous order of this universe has come about as a result of it. That has to be nonsense of the highest order. We see there was a tremendous activity on the part of the great God to bring about the order about us. No wonder the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 11, verse number 3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are made were not made of things which do appear. God brought them into existence by His speaking and gave them the marvelous order that you and I appreciate today. Cause and effect. One last element in the lesson this evening about a matter touched upon in the Word of God. And this was the part of that particular lesson text that Brother Eddie read for us a little earlier. 
In the 102nd Psalm, we have, as it closes, a particular statement that we shall find its proper course in this particular slide. To the scientists, as well as to the engineers, there perhaps are no attributes of stronger thrust and force than are the laws of thermodynamics. In fact, that particular phrase I use very carefully. They are recognized laws, not the first exception to either the first, second, or third laws of thermodynamics have ever been recorded. Though meticulous scrutiny has been given, though incredible experiments have attempted to test them with great extreme care, no exceptions, no violations, no transgressions of them have been discovered. You'll notice then, perhaps we should ask, what about the first and second laws of thermodynamics? The first law of thermodynamics I've tried to highlight very, very briefly. It can be stated in a number of ways. One way that'll suffice for us is just to appreciate this. Neither matter nor energy can be created nor destroyed. You can affect transitions now or conversions between them, but there is a basic elemental amount of energy that we have been given and we cannot make any more and we cannot destroy any of it either. No wonder our scientist friends and engineers that can design an engine or some kind of device that converts energy from one form to another and how noteworthy that often is. But they would be quick to tell us they aren't creating anymore. I wonder what the Bible might have to say about this issue in creation and the opportunity that we might see in it. We might revisit Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. In the very first verse of the second chapter of the book of God, we have there this interesting statement. Remember, chapter 1 had just ended with six days of creation. And we find the powerful reminder is that verse, chapter 1 verse 31 closes, everything was said to be very good. And then verse 2 says that the creation was finished. And the Hebrew word suggests a closure, a completion, and that it is no longer ongoing. And thus we see that what scientists did not actually state as a law until really about the 19th century. The book of God had said the creation was finished long, long before that. It was finished, completed. No longer was it in part going on. We might pause to notice how that touches on sometimes a subject of biology even in our day. For there are those that state that as organisms change and new kinds of things come about, sometimes they will use the word creation to describe this. We must be very cautious to note the creation ended. There's no longer any new form of energy in the sense that a new thing along that line, the creation was completed. You'll also notice in these other verses that there's no destruction either. For instance, consider Nehemiah 9 verse 6. There, that noble writer in the Old Testament simply pointed out in marvelous character how that God's creative activity has stood firm and has stood the test of time throughout these centuries. And he was quick to admit that the human family is not at liberty to detract in the sense of destroying any of it. Consider yet again in Isaiah 40 verse 26 as well as Ecclesiastes 3 verse 14. 
In all these instances, we find that there are hints, sometimes very strong ones, about the reality of what's called that first law of thermodynamics. And yet, it was in the Word of God, stated at least in these ways, centuries and centuries before. It is a faith-building exercise to revisit at least some of those issues, isn't it? That first law of thermodynamics. We actually might pause just a moment and say, it has tremendous consequences for the actual creation of the universe. After all, you and I might think of it this way. If it's true, and certainly we recognize it today, matter and energy can be created or destroyed. So where did the first matter in the universe come from? Scientists freely admit that matter cannot create itself. So where did it come from? It seems as though the options are extremely limited. If matter can't create itself, and if it hasn't always been here, then some force greater than it and outside it had to create it. You and I know that Genesis chapter 1 describes that force as the great God of heaven. He brought it into existence, and He's the one that brought it to the very point that we still recognize it. The first law of thermodynamics. What about the second law of thermodynamics? It too is a tremendously powerful statement in science. It's a tremendously powerful, useful theorem law, if you please, even in engineering. Every device that's constructed has at its core a reality of correctness concerning both these laws of thermodynamics. The second law simply states, like, simply states this. I've tried to put it in language that hopefully will look very familiar to all of us. You and I observe that around us things tend to wear out. Things tend to run down. Things tend to decay and deteriorate. They seem not to improve left to themselves over time, but they seem to go in the other direction. You go and buy a shiny new farm implement. Leave it sitting out in the rain for a few summers and a few winters, and soon it's rusted. Soon it's decayed. Soon it's deteriorated. It has naturally of its own accord worn out, and it has less in terms of the shiny reality and the nature of the character that it once had. This thing about wearing out, you'll notice that that does have much to say about this second law of thermodynamics. After all, energy does the same. I stated earlier that that first law teaches us that there's a fixed amount of energy in this universe. We're not at liberty to make any more, and we can't remove any that we have. But the second law says that the usable forms of those energy is decreasing. There's still as much there, but it's not in the same usable form. It's been converted to something that we cannot use as effectively. That's all the second law of thermodynamics says. But yet look at what the Bible teaches as it relates to those matters. Eddie read in Psalm 102 verse 26, How that the heavens, just like an old garment, are going to be rolled up and cast aside. They're wearing out. They're decaying, deteriorating over time. You'll notice also in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 6 and following, the inspired New Testament writer touched on the exact same subject when there he said that this universe in which we live, the earth and the heavens alike, 
they are wearing out over time. They're becoming less usable in the sense of the nature that they once had. Here are statements in full agreement to the second law of thermodynamics nestled in the heart of the Bible all this time. Furthermore, you'll appreciate in Isaiah 51, verse number 6, that particular statement of the major prophet Isaiah again touches on the deterioration seen in natural causes in the systems around us. You and I appreciate then that when we look at systems, be they mechanical, be they biological or otherwise, and we seem to see the imprint of the second law of thermodynamics all over them, it reminds us that all the while God is in full control of all these things. This is a part of the systems that He has put in place. You and I notice, for instance, some of the details of 2 Peter 3 yet again. This earth and the feature of the fact that again she is tending to wear out over time. The elements of decay to be seen in it. For all those reasons, perhaps they're at the bottom. I've tried to highlight the language that some of these inspired writers have used. Wax old. That phrase literally means wear out. This word wax old in Isaiah literally means to dissipate. Furthermore, the word wax old as it occurs in Hebrews, it means to make or become old. As our astronomer friends peer their telescopes into the heavens and they see what's out there, they sometimes see stars and quasars. They even see the artifacts of black holes and other things. But the changes energetically that take place give full agreement that everywhere they see, the second law of thermodynamics holds true. Things are not moving in ways toward what we would call improvement. They're deteriorating. And so it is in this world about us. May I suggest, doesn't that make us look for a new heavens and a new earth? Doesn't it make us long for a place where there's not this deterioration? You and I, even as human beings, realize it too, don't we? That newborn baby that enters this world and its brain and its heart and all the features of its body are strong, but give it 80 years, give it 90 years, maybe even less, and its heart begins to have troubles. That old heart just wears out. You live a hundred years and you have reached a milestone. But we notice that this body just wears out in time. For all those reasons, perhaps we've reached a point again of conclusion for tonight's lesson. I suppose that our study, as it tries to give us some consideration of physics and its place in the Scriptures, has again been a bit on the side of thrilling. For it tells us that what scientists think may be new... And what they think they've discovered was written in here a long, long time ago. It also gives us a gr greater element of confidence in this book. If it had scientific things in it, thousands of years before scientists discovered it, then man could not have written it. It had to be God. It had to be the Holy Spirit who superintended its writing. No wonder the inspired writer said in 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21, knowing this first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
I hope tonight that we've each been encouraged yet again to think about the nature of the book of God and the nature of some of the matters scientifically that are found in it. We'll continue our series next Sunday evening by looking at some of the other aspects of scientific information found in the Bible. Tonight, though, as you and I analyze ourselves, our lives, where do you and I stand before the august presence of the awesome God of heaven? Are all things well with you this very evening? If you find upon consideration that things are not well with you, why not put confidence in the one who wrote this book, who arranged this universe with all the beauty that we observe, and also, of course, has testified that there shall be a day of judgment where you will give account of all the deeds done in the body, Romans 2, verse 6. If you've never obeyed the gospel, tonight would be the perfect night. You need with all your heart to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 8, 24. You also need to repent of the sins in your life, for they are what in part took Jesus to the cross. That repentance commanded in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. Confess then at that time the great name of Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. If you have taken care of that needful matter in life at some point, but tonight you have drifted, you no longer are faithful, you have stepped aside and begun to walk off on a pathway that's dangerous and unsafe because it's separated, of course, from the God that loves you. The same God that brought all this order into the universe loves and cares for you, and He wants you to be His faithful servant. Thus He says, if we walk in the light... As He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1 verse 7. If you need to come back to His side tonight, you need to take the first step. Come down this aisle, make a confession if sins are of a public nature, and let us pray with you and for you. We'd be honored to do that. Brother Adam has chosen this hymn of encouragement, and if we could be of assistance to anyone in the audience, won't you let it be known? At once, while together we stand and sing. <laughs>